This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the Stars limited series, Mary and George. Julianne Moore and Nicholas Galitzine star in the scandalous true story of Mary Valliere, who molded her beautiful and charismatic son to seduce King James I. Quite the moment in history. See why the Hollywood Reporter calls it a delicious drama. Mary and George, for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all eligible categories. Mary and George is now streaming on the Stars app. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual and now via Google Hangout by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up? Oh, just chilling like a villain, Leslie. How about you? Um, hanging in. Not much going on here. Binging. Uh, we just finished watching Elite or Elite. And yes, I have started Brockmeyer. I'm halfway through season two now. It is fantastic. You are right, Dan. It is a <laughs> tremendous show. And I don't know why I waited so long to start watching it, but it is brilliant. There is a great scene that, and this is no spoilers here, but as a baseball fan where he, where Hank Azaria's character, Brockmeyer, is playing catch with someone. And the guy is such a bad, like, he can't throw. And Brockmeyer says, are you sure you're right-handed? And I just lost, completely lost it. It was just so funny. It is a terrific show. And we continue to recommend it to the people. Yes. Well, before we get into headlines this week, I want to throw out a special thanks to our fantastic producers, Matt Whitehurst and Josh Farnham, for keeping us going and making sure that all of our tech glitches are smoothly handled and we did a great showrunner spotlight last week with Gloria Calderon Kellett that went almost seamlessly and just so grateful to to have have them on our team. They are as ever our life's blood. Uh, Let's get into this week's headlines because there is actually some news here Dan. That's somewhat reassuring even if I don't know that the news is any indication that we're moving forward with life exactly. I think it's just an indication that we're preparing to move forward with life someday. That's true. Yes. Uh, The stay-at-home order has obviously been extended to April 30th. And in a response, broadcast and cable networks continue to shift their schedules to make up for the production interruptions. This week, Showtime announced that Billions and Black Monday would both be split in half, with the second parts of their current seasons airing later this year when they can resume production and editing, etc., other networks like the CW have moved up the stars of their summer programming. Meanwhile, ABC Nick's plans for the Bachelor Summer Games amid the coronavirus pandemic. Not the Bachelor Summer Games. You've gone too far this time, Corona pandemic. But also, who's going to want to make out with a stranger even after it's safe to go back to work? Right. I mean, I, I don't know. That's maybe it's just me. And I, I'm also not someone who watches that franchise, but I, I don't see how that moves forward in this world. I believe the answer to that question is the same people who would want to be on a show called Bachelor Summer Games. So, yeah, you're right. I'm sure, as they say, the show will go on someday. In series orders, Christopher Maloney will reprise his Law & Order SVU role in a new untitled spinoff series that NBC has ordered straight to series. 
this is one of multiple straight-to-series orders that was included in Dick Wolf's nine-figure, yes, nine-figure deal that he signed back in February. Elsewhere, Amazon won a bidding award for a TV adaptation of Janelle Brown's upcoming novel Pretty Things with Nicole Kidman signed on to star and produce via her overall deal with the streamer. Elsewhere, and this is good news for baseball fans, cable provider Spectrum announced this week that it has reached an agreement with AT&T for the Dodgers cable network, Sportsnet LA, to be carried on DirecTV platforms. You know, look, that's great news for more than half of LA, which had been blacked out from watching games for the past six years. They missed all the World Series runs. They missed Vin Scully's final games. You know, in the meantime, you know, it's unclear when MLB could resume play as baseball, basketball, and hockey all remain shut down. In the meantime, it's unclear when any of the professional sports leagues will start up again. There are some talks and rumblings about baseball starting up again and stretching out the postseason and maybe, you know, doing away with the All-Star game. But yeah, it's a giant question mark. But either way, that half of LA can watch the Dodgers again when they resume play is good news. Of course, I'm a little frustrated because I just moved last month and of course changed my cable provider to Spectrum so I could have the Dodgers, which... Yeah, well. So it's actually not good news for anyone on this podcast because I already (laughs) had Spectrum, but it still is generally good news, or it will be if they play baseball again. When they play baseball. I have to think when they play baseball, Dan. Absolutely. And in renewal news, Netflix has picked up Lock and Key for a second season. You can, of course, check out our terrific showrunner spotlight interview with Carlton Cuse and Meredith Averill from a couple of months ago. uh, From February 14th. Ooh, you even had a date show off. Uh, yes, <laughs> where they where they talked about their plans for the show going forward and kind of expanding beyond the parameters of the comic book. Meanwhile, Hulu has ordered a third season of A.D. Bryant's Shrill. There's no word on when either will be able to resume production. Yeah. And in cancellation news, Netflix has pulled the plug on dramas V Wars and October Faction, two scripted series that, like Lock and Key, were both based on comics from IDW Entertainment. Oh, boy, am I going to have to take your word that those are both actually two TV shows. <laughs> yeah, well, one, one of them had starred Ian Somerhalder from the Vampire Diaries franchise. And uh, Netflix is, is sources say, in talks with him for other projects. But, you know, he's a star with a, a with a large enough base that I think it behooves them to find something to work with him on. And I believe that the other one starred Bone Star Tamara Taylor, if memory serves. But again, I, I it did does. not watch. It does. You're correct, sir. Ah, look at these things. See, we have knowledge. We are a knowledgeable podcast, Leslie. Yes. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, as much of the country remains at home watching and streaming TV, we have our first proverbial water cooler show of quarantine. And it's no surprise, it's a docuseries on Netflix called Shocker Tiger King. Dan, you gave the seven part docuseries a glowing review ahead of its March 20th premiere. Leading into its launch, when you were sitting at home watching these screeners, did you anticipate it becoming this kind of a phenomenon? I'm not sure that my review is really a glowing review. I would describe my review as a mixed to positive review. I think if you go back and you look at it, I definitely anticipated that the show was going to be a show that people were going to like and watch and that it was going to be a breakout success. Uh, You can go back. That's on the record. I knew this was going to be a show people were going to dig. I I think that the documentary itself is messy as hell and that its storytelling ranges from 
amusingly improvisational and on the fly to pretty dismal by the end. I think if you go and watch like the last episode and a half, it's pretty much just the directors going, okay, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of crazy stuff, bye. And I don't think that's particularly good storytelling. Um, but on the other hand, it is ridiculously compulsively viewable. And this is a moment where, heaven knows, people are looking for things that are distractions. I, I think that it is it is a nightmarish freak show of a series, but it is a nightmarish freak show that is a variation from the nightmarish freak show of our life. And I think that that is something that people unquestionably appreciate, and I understand why. It is very much an easily watchable, easily bingeable crazy, crazy show. That's the appeal, right? It's it's kind of watching this kind of batshit crazy story come to life. Yeah, the, the appeal is that you never know where the story is going. And the funny thing is, obviously, when people, if they started watching it when it premiered two weeks ago, they didn't necessarily know what the story was. They were probably drawn in by a couple little bits and pieces or by Netflix's very good promotion for it. But even if you feel like you've heard a half dozen of the twists that take place in the show as it progresses into a complicated murder for hire scheme and other various things. I, I promise you, you really only know a little bit of what is actually covered in the series. There is a lot of stuff here. It is very twisty, very surprising. And yeah, I I understand why people are, are digging it. I don't think it's a great show by any stretch of the imagination, but it may well be, and in fact, clearly probably is, the show we need at the moment. For people like me who haven't watched this because of out of sensitivities to animal abuse, exactly how much is there? And and I mean, what would you say to people like me who are reluctant to watch it because of, of, of that, the threat of seeing that? Like, I don't, I can't watch that. I can't watch any, any animal abuse, especially to tigers. I think it's, it's limited in the on-camera depiction. On the other hand, if you are an animal rights type person and you think that it's entirely fundamentally, uh, you can't see, but in our chat room right now, Leslie is showing off the tiger tattoo that she has on her arm. I'd never seen that tattoo before, Leslie. Yeah, it's uh, I'm I was born near the tiger. I've always identified and kind of had a soft spot for tigers my entire life, uh, dating back to my childhood. So, yeah, I'm not watching any kind of abuse against I, tigers. I had no idea. But anyway, so, yes, uh, it's like it's not like it's a snuff film. So uh, there's that. But on the other hand, it. You know, it, it is definitely depicting an awful lot of, I don't know, baby tigers being passed around like playthings to kind of ghoulish tourists and the feeding of these majestic animals who in the wild would probably be eating huge piles of fresh carrion, uh, instead eating expired luncheon meat taken from a dumpster at Walmart. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff that is clearly not good, not ideal. And if you are sensitive to such material, I can very much understand why you would not want to watch this show. Yeah, I mean, and on the flip side here, there's also what we're seeing here with Tiger King is kind of the making a murderer impact of sorts, where Tampa authorities are now reopening the cold case at the heart of the series, right? What's been going on on that front? <laughs> they're, interestingly, they're reopening one of the cases at the heart of the series because there's an awful lot. You know, there's there's both the general murder for hire scheme, but then there's all of the speculation about the disappearance of animal rights activist Carol Baskin's husband, uh, Don, and... A lot of people in the documentary speculate 
very, very bluntly and apparently with no concerns about being charged with slander or anything in particular that Carol Baskin may or may not have possibly fed her missing husband to her tigers, which is a pretty big accusation to make without any particular evidence. Uh, But heaven knows people in the documentary do it happily and naturally and not surprisingly, Carol Baskin does not feel like this is a (laughs) an accurate depiction of who or what she actually fed her ex-husband to. Um, but yes. Alleg- allegedly, I feel like we should say allegedly. <laughs> yes, allegedly. Here, Dan. Yeah, no, no, it's all it's all ridiculous. It's all alleged and it's all the amusement of the series. But yes, uh, local authorities have been active on Twitter trying to open up the floor for new tips into the disappearance of uh, of her missing husband. And they say they've been getting tips, but mostly not particularly reliable. So we'll see if this helps solve a crime. Um, And thus far, I don't believe Carol Baskin has gone so far as to actually sue or threaten to sue anybody. And we'll see. She did have a very strongly worded blog post, though. Oh, yes. No, no. She well, look, she's she is not depicted particularly well in the series. There's no question about that. A lot of the ways that she's depicted negatively, I, I think probably she needs to think introspectively about, like, for example, the way it treats what she's doing as basically exploiting the cats and her workers in similar ways to the ways these private zoos are doing it. I think a lot of that would be harder for her to disagree with, and she doesn't seem to be disagreeing as actively with that. Uh, but yes, the the part about her feeding her missing husband to a tiger, I can understand why she would feel allegedly. Like that, that was allegedly <laughs> um, would be the kind of thing that I can understand why she wouldn't necessarily want that to be part of the most popular show on television at the minute, or hypothetically most popular show, because as we may have mentioned at some point, we don't actually know how many people watch Netflix things, but I assume we're going to totally at some point, uh, probably next week or the week after, after get a Netflix tweet telling us how many zillion people have watched at least two minutes of it. Yeah, exactly. And somehow now Shaq is involved in this. What's I mean, Dan, yes. what's going on here? <laughs> Shaq is depicted as one of many celebrities who used to go to one of these various private, not really zoos for big cats. And he has said that he no longer goes and would no longer go and yeah, it, it doesn't make him look particularly good. But on the other hand, the way it's presented, these zoo type things are are cash machines that people are paying ridiculous amounts of money to go to so that they can take selfies with tigers. So it's not just Shaq. It's a, a lot of people. There's a whole industry and infrastructure around this that is very much covered in this series. And everyone should definitely feel a little bit unclean after watching it, either for our own complicity in such things. You know, if you've ever, I don't know, gotten a photo taken with an exotic animal, um, I can't say that I have unless Cookie Monster counts. He came to press tour once and I got a picture with him. Does that count? Probably well, not. You, but you met the the monkey from Animal Practice, right? I did. And the monkey from Animal Practice sat on my shoulder. So there's definitely a question of whether we should feel guilty about any pictures we may or may not have taken with either Crystal, uh, the monkey or with what's the name of the the monkey who plays played Marcel and Friends? Leslie? Katie. Katie. Excellent. I, so, yes. And I, and I just met Katie, the capuchin monkey. Yes. So, um, yeah, there 
there, there's a lot of complicity that we should all feel, and there's a lot of probably guilt we should feel about the amount that we enjoy this. But hey, you know, watching things that make us feel guilty is definitely an American pastime as well. So uh, between that and the tragic cancellation of the Bachelor Summer Games, you know, there's there's a lot of animals. Like Making a Murderer, there was a sequel, right? Because that became, you know, as we know, a big breakout, too. So should there be a sequel for this one? I think there probably will be uh, because the documentary, it, it stops fairly abruptly. And anyone who was the least bit invested in the series has unquestionably Googled to find out what happened after the series. And stuff has happened and also... And continues to happen. And continues to happen. So if, for example, they actually get tips about what did or did not happen to Carol Baskin's ex-husband, allegedly, and who he was or was not fed to, allegedly. There's a lot more story <laughs> going, and I assume that we will eventually get another chapter of this, what with its, you know, popularity and all. The second season of Making a Murder, though, was very, very bad. And I hope that someone would take into consideration the problems with that season and how basically the season became this meta examination of what the aftermath is of being part of a Netflix crime series. So it all kind of twisted and turned into itself. And it was it was like 10 hours and probably could have been a two hour follow up movie. I, I would strongly recommend that if Netflix wants to revisit this, that they revisit this in a, a two hour movie format and not an additional seven, eight, ten hours please. <laughs> Number two. Up second, it's nearly go time for Quibi, the $2 billion short form video platform backed by Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman as the service officially launches Monday, April 6th to an audience not so much on the go anymore and now quarantined from home. The service, which costs $5 a month with ads or $8 without, will bow with an estimated 50 programs, including four scripted series and multiple unscripted and news offerings. Joining us to break down what to expect from Quibi's launch is THR's digital editor and frequent friend of the five, Natalie Jarvie. Natalie, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Good to see you over camera here. <sighs> Great seeing you too, my friend. How, how are you holding up, Natalie? <laughs> You know, I'm doing what everyone's doing, watching way too much television, um, baking a lot of bread, you know, hanging in there. <laughs> yes, the Corona, what is it, the Corona 15 pounds? The, my, mine feel more like, you know, I've actually lost weight right now, so I don't know what, what to make of it. No one likes to show off, Leslie, and that's not what this segment is about anyway. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, so let's let's talk about Dan's favorite platform, Quibi. Uh, sorry, Quibi. Um, what can consumers expect from Quibi at launch? Yeah, so Quibi is launching with 50 original series, and that's going to uh, include a pretty broad range of programming, everything from serialized dramas kind of told in chapters that are released each day, all the way to kind of daily news updates on all variety of topics from kind of traditional news to celebrity news to sports to music. Uh, that's through a segment they're calling their Daily Essentials. Now... Have you had conversations with any Quibi folks to get a sense of how they're feeling like the coronavirus and the associated quarantine are going to impact a platform that initially when they announced it, it was announced around the idea, oh, you can do this between the breaks in your ordinary life. Well, now that ordinary life is gone, is that good or bad for Quibi, do you think? 
Yeah. So, I mean, they're moving forward with launch as planned uh, in spite of the global shutdown that everyone's experiencing right now. And, you know, they are honest that this will probably be a slow ramp up, right? That it'll take a while for them to find subscribers and, you know, capture people's interest. But when I asked Jeffrey Katzenberg specifically about the coronavirus shutdown and, and whether that changed is kind of the value proposition of Quibi, he made the point that, you know, there's still breaks in the day, uh, even when you're at home. Uh, maybe you're not waiting in line or, you know, sitting on a train, but, you know, you probably need, you know, downtime in between work and that he expects people will still check out the service uh, during those breaks in the day. So for a mobile platform, I think, you know, we had a, a mailbag question from listener LB who wrote this week asking if Quibi is going to be available beyond mobile devices. So like, will quarantine viewers be able to watch it via their smart TVs? Is there any kind of update on that or is it still like, you know, still looking at your phone? And the answer is that there's no update on that. It is largely a mobile-only device. I think you'll be able to cast it onto your TV screen if you have a Chromecast or if you have an Apple TV, uh, but the majority of people will have to use their phones to watch it. And that is going to be a challenge for Quibi. I mean, if you think about it, I like to sit down in the evening and watch television with my husband, and it's a communal experience. And it's harder to have that communal experience if you're watching something on your phone, presumably with your headphones in. So it could be isolating, and that could, you know, hinder some people from checking it out early on while they're stuck at home. Yeah, we've been streaming Brockmire through Hulu on our cell phones and then Chromecasting it to our screen. So there's that, I guess, way of doing it. But yeah, I mean, in a larger sense, my question is, has any of their programming been impacted by the production shutdown that, that has affected so many other TV series? So they had a lot of their programming kind of stockpiled and ready to go. Uh, and they say that they have enough programming in the pipeline that they could continue to release new shows up through like fall of this year. So they seem pretty well set. The one section of shows that, that faced the biggest challenges were their daily essentials, because those are really meant to be very current affairs driven. And in an ideal scenario, you know, the, the shows will be, you know, shot and turned around within about a day. So they did have to kind of think on their feet in terms of keeping those productions going. Most of them have uh, moved to now the sets are like in people's homes. They had to send, you know, recording equipment to all their hosts and basically help them figure out how to produce these shows remotely and, you know, with their producers, you know, on video camera as opposed to in person. So for the most part, all of those shows are moving forward. Uh, there's a handful of shows that, that can't move forward for various reasons, but otherwise they expect to have a full slate of programming on Monday. In your conversations with the good people at Quibi, uh, what have you gotten a sense that they're particularly pushing or excited about among the non-daily essential programming? What are the what are the kind of two or three or four big ticket programs they want to make sure people catch? You know, it's interesting. I, I asked Jeffrey about this and and he didn't really give me a clear answer. He, you know, talked a lot about kind of the types of programming he wants to see, um, you know, largely kind of serialized scripted programming. But he really said it's going to be up to the consumers. And his philosophy is that, you know, no one's going to like everything that Quibi is offering, but that if they can, you know, hook people with one or two or three shows, that that's enough. And they want to have something for everyone uh, is 
kind of, you know, how they're approaching things. The one thing I, I have noticed, you know, certainly uh, they've been promoting the Chrissy Teigen show, Chrissy's Court, quite heavily. T-Mobile subscribers who uh, sign up via that wireless service will get extra episodes of Thanks a Million, which is an unscripted show produced by Jennifer Lopez. So those seem to be a couple that they're pushing. And outside of that, I think they're going to kind of wait and see. And, and my understanding is that depending on what people like, they then kind of, you know, have things in the pipeline that they can serve to customers. Uh, so, you know, if people are really into kind of the absurdist reality TV shows, they've got more of that coming, that type of thing. So, you know, we've talked a lot on, on the show about how all of these upstart platforms really need their version of The Mandalorian, right? So for Peacock, for example, they were hoping for that to be the Olympics. And now they're banking on the library. Same thing with HBO Max with Friends. So what is that Mandalorian type show for Quibi? That's a great question. I don't know that I have an answer. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't tell you one show that's going to be their big breakout hit. I mean, they do have some known IP. They've got a punked reboot, for example. Uh, so there's a few things that maybe could, uh, you know, draw people in. But that is going to be their biggest challenge. They don't have franchises. Uh, they don't have, you know, temple movies or or big libraries. And a lot of these streaming services rely on that well-known content to draw people in. And so Quibi will have to find if they can create that content themselves or if they're going to have to, you know, find another way to to hook people. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of big celebrity representation in the Quibi programming, but getting people to understand that there's a little something for everybody feels like it's going to be a challenge. Like, how is anyone going to know that there's an entire show where Will Arnett makes fun of Jim Cotta for five minutes? That's a That is a show that exists on this on this streaming platform. So... But how do you get people to find out? How have they been pushing it, do you feel? Well, they've they've been marketing uh, via billboards, which very few people are seeing <laughs> right now, and uh, via commercials. They had a big Super Bowl commercial. But it's interesting because, you know, they've, they've been releasing some of the trailers for their shows, but the, the Quibi-specific commercials don't actually really highlight much of the programming, which seems like an interesting choice. I, I will also point the, to the T-Mobile partnership again as, as a big way that they're going to be marketing this service. T-Mobile is, is going to kind of pull out all the stops to help Quibi onboard new subscribers. They're giving it away for free for a year to certain of their members. So... You know, some people may find out about Quibi via T-Mobile and, and decide to check it out because, hey, they're getting it for free. So beyond this initial slate, how often will they be posting new content? So once, you know, they have, what, 10 episodes of that form, like an hour and a half long TV series of sorts, is it going to be like a daily thing where like, OK, this thing ended, now we have another one. Like how, how frequently will they release some of these new new titles? Yeah, so for their kind of premium scripted shows, they are calling them movies and chapters. Those will be released daily until they end, and you'll get a new one or two of those every week. Uh, so, you know, some of them will kind of overlap. The unscripted programming, you'll get maybe an episode or two per week, and so those will last for considerably longer. And then the daily programming will be five, six days a week in most cases. So... You can expect to see new shows drop on the service every week and then new episodes drop every day. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, glad that you are staying safe and sane. And it was very nice to see you via Google Hangout. It was. It was good to catch up, you guys. Number three. 
Up third this week, the calendar has thankfully turned to April. And with much of the country stuck at home through the end of the month, let's take a look at the networks and streamers and what they have to entertain us this month. Dan, you know, I, I every time we do one of these segments, I always glance at THR's handy premier dates guide and I look at just the sheer amount of stuff. And yes, there have been some things that have been pushed back and moved up and shuffled and seasons ending abruptly. But there is still a lot of, of content that appears, at least from everything that we know as as of this recording, that's in the can and ready to go. And it's an impressive list. I'm just going to rattle off a couple and then you tell me what stands out. How does that sound? Go for it, because heaven knows there really is a ton of TV this month. There is eventually we are going to hit the point at which the coffers are going to begin to dry up and people like me are going to have to figure out other things to do with our lives. But we are not reaching that point in April. No, some of the big high profile premieres are Amazon's Tales from the Loop, which is no joke, inspired by a painting. Uh, the return of The Good Fight on CBS All Access. The third season of BBC America's Killing Eve. HBO has the fourth season of Insecure and the series debut of Phoebe Waller-Bridge produced comedy Run. Then there's the star-studded Mrs. America, which will debut on FX on Hulu. And as a reminder, we'll have Davi Waller, the showrunner of Mrs. America, joining uh, us on the show next week. Over at Netflix, they've got the Kenya Barris comedy Black AF. ESPN moved up its Chicago Bulls documentary, The Last Dance. Apple has Chris Evans-led limited series Defending Jacob. Stars bids farewell to Vita. Showtime returns to the world of Penny Dreadful, and Hulu has its highly anticipated adaptation of Normal People. And then, as if that's not enough, you've got the series finales of ABC's Modern Family, Will and Grace for the second time on NBC, and Schitt's Creek over on Pop. Dan, that's a lot, but you know, and and I'm sure you've already started screeners on, and you've got a review from Tales of the Loop up online already. But what from this list, or even stuff that may, I may have missed, are you most looking forward to checking out this month? Yeah, that is a lot. Um, and you mentioned the series finales of Modern Family, Will and Grace and Schitt's Creek. And that's really only the start of it, because there's also the series finale of Hawaii Five-0. We like to maybe make jokes about endlessly long running CBS dramas and, you know, whatever. But Hawaii Five-0 in its current incarnation has aired, I believe, 240 episodes, give or take, which is insane. And I mean, for heaven's sakes, that's a show that's been nominated for multiple Emmys for stunt work and uh, for a Golden Globe for Scott Kahn. So, you know, don't forget that. And then also a little show called Homeland. So there's a lot of stuff ending this month. And I assume that to varying degrees, we will pay tribute to several of these shows. I believe that uh, our colleague Ingu Kang is going to write about the Shit's Creek finale next week. I'm going to be writing about the Modern Family finale. I will have an interview with Modern Family creators that posts after the series finale wraps. And of course, you should always go back and listen to our fantastic uh, podcast interview with Steve Levitan, where he talked about why it was the right time to end said show. So anyway, and yes. you can find that in our September 27th episode. <laughs> oh, God, you've got everything at your fingertips. It's crazy. It's called a, it's called a Google spreadsheet with a, it's a database. Dan, you've got it, too. I may or may <laughs> not have it, but I am not yeah. a a spreadsheet person. So yes, so lots and lots of stuff. There's no question that if you ask me the thing of this group that I am the most excited for, there is no question that the answer is uh, The Last Dance on ESPN, which was supposed to come out at a kind of indeterminate time in the summer. And they just announced last week that it will be bumping up to April 19th. So I am both a little bit cautious and curious as to whether the story of that last Bulls championship is really worth a 10-hour documentary. But on the other hand, 
I'm here for it and looking forward to it. Uh, were, you, no, were you a Bulls fan? I'm not a huge Bulls fan specifically, but I was definitely a fan of those championship runs and kind of the greatness of those teams. And I am an appreciator of Michael Jordan and his genius and several of those other people and their greatness in different ways. So, yeah, I am, I'm looking forward to it. I hope that it is sociologically rich in a way comparable to OJ Made in America, because that's kind of how that documentary justified being as long as it was. So we'll see. I've seen thus far exactly zero seconds of it. So we'll see. Um, no, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff. There's the the re the resurrection of Penny Dreadful looks extremely interesting, and it appears to feature Natalie Dormer, who I always enjoy in a a very complicated part. I'm looking forward to that. And you're a big fan of the original. I, I definitely liked the original a lot. The original is a show that to some degree has kind of gotten lost in the the seas of time, especially since it was ended so seemingly abruptly. Uh, and the new season has basically nothing to do with the old show. And so I think there's only one one actor reprising their role in that. Yeah, and it's uh, kind of a new uh, it's like an offshoot new chapter type thing. Right. I, I believe Rory Kinnear is the only actor who is uh, in both and so, yeah, it's it's basically thematically connected, but not in any way directly connected. So that will be interesting. Uh, you know, glad to have Killing Eve back. I thought the second season was fairly uneven, but I uneve in. <laughs> oh, oh, damn. It, whatever. It, it, it happened. I was there for it. I knew it was coming. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> but I'm definitely glad to have it back in general. Always like the good fight. I will be curious uh, to see how that plays out. Ooh, did we do and a podcast? Also, <laughs> and that we should mention, too, that the good fight is going to have a split season as well because they were unable to finish production on that, too. So, oh, I thought you were anticipating my question. Which podcast interview did we interview the Kings, Leslie? You can listen to our interview with Robert and Michelle King talking all about CBS's evil as well as the good fight and their upcoming Showtime series, Your Honor, in our January 17th episode. Yes, it was a good chat. Definitely like that one. And I'm always a fan of Good Fight. I will be sad to see Vita go. Uh, Vita is a, a great little show. It's it's sexy. It's funny. It's specific. It's distinctive. And if Tanya and you Sir can listen to our interview <laughs> with Tanya Siracho from last June, where we talked all about LGBTQ Pride Month and representation on TV, including on her great series. It's true. Yeah, lots of there's really a tremendous amount of television. And you haven't even mentioned that CBS is broke premieres tonight, which is to say Thursday. So last night, if you're listening to this on Friday. Yeah, there's there really is a ton of TV. Uh, our aforementioned colleague Inku Kang gave a rave review to Mrs. America. And I, it's a it's a, an unreal cast. It, it is just a ridiculously good cast and i will be looking forward to watching more than just the two episodes of that that i've watched yeah no no one no one should feel as if they are missing out on things to watch on tv in the month of april <laughs> yeah so so if your favorite show ended abruptly and like so many are happening to you on, on broadcast there's still a lot of interesting stuff coming and of course you know as we've indicated we've got a lot of great showrunner interviews so if you feel like listening to us yammer for another you know a couple more interviews go back and check out some of our our, our previous interviews uh i'm really proud of some of the the great showrunners that we've had on the show dan i am too and they're really for the most part great conversations help 
not for the most part. They're all great conversations, Leslie. And speaking of which, Dan, it's time for our fourth segment, which, as you know, it's our showrunner spotlight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Number four. Joining us in our showrunner spotlight this week is Dana Fox, co-creator and co-showrunner of Apple TV Plus's Home Before Dark. In addition to creating and running Fox's Ben and Kate, her feature credits include The Wedding Date and What Happens in Vegas. And we should note that this interview was completed March 12th and what we will remember fondly as our last day in our now former newsroom. Well, with all that out of the way, Dana, welcome to the podcast. Ah, oh, thank you for having me. Let's start with the genesis of this show. First of all, how did you hear about Hildy Lisak's story and how did you decide to adapt this and have it set up at Apple and walk us through the whole genesis? Yes. My amazing friend, Joy Gorman, who is a friend for a long time and an incredible producer, was at an event. I think it was the Tribeca Disruptors thing or something like that. And all these adults were getting awards. And then this little girl walked up on stage. And I think probably the wasn't tall enough to accept the award. But she started talking about what she cared about. And Joy thought, what an extraordinary little girl that she cares so much about the truth, that she cares so much about journalism, that she cares so much about finding what is real in the world. And she happened to be sitting with Hildy's parents and she turned to them and Joy has a, a daughter who I think was like five or six at the time. And she said, can you please move in with me and help me raise my daughter? Because you made the most extraordinary child. How did it happen? And, you know, they were very honest. And they said, you know, I think she just sort of came out this way. And she got to talking to Hildy's parents and they got along really well. And then, you know, a bunch of people really wanted Hildy's life rights because there was an article that went viral and I think it was in the New York Times. And, you know, people were really vying for it because it was obviously sort of an, a really interesting story, really unusual. And she ended up saying, OK, I want to work with you guys. And she's on the phone with them and all these producers are vying for it. And Joy was apparently the only one that talked directly to Hildy of all of these people. And she asked Hildy the questions and she said, why do you want to be a journalist? What is it that makes you care so much about the truth and about journalism? And her parents, after the fact, said, you know, the reason that you sort of beat out all of these incredibly fancy producers and, you know, Joy is a fancy producer herself. They said the reason you beat them all out is because you're the only one that spoke directly to Hildy. And they wanted somebody who was going to take Hildy's story as seriously as Hildy takes herself and as seriously as they take Hildy. And so that's kind of been like our North Star throughout this whole thing is taking this character as seriously as she takes herself. And it's kind of honestly been at the root of everything we've done. It's partly why 
why we sold it to Apple because Apple got it right away. They completely understood this is a little girl who's really extraordinary. And what makes her extraordinary is not that she is a superhero who has special powers. It's like I've seen that story before. I've seen a girl who can like shoot fire out of her eyes. I've seen a young girl who is a superhero because she can fly or has special abilities or all these things. And, you know, what I've never seen is a little girl who's a superhero for just being a little girl who works really hard and cares very deeply. And to me, that is sort of a superhero. Absolutely, especially in this climate of fake news allegations and all of that nonsense. A hundred percent. And, you know, when we started out doing this, we didn't fully know what world we were going to be in right now. And I think it was really important to us that we were saying something that mattered, that said something that was really positive, that put out a really positive message in the world. But honestly, I don't think we realized how bad it was going to get. And so now more than ever, this message of truth in the era of fake news is so important to us and to all of the people working on the show. Hildy's very feisty. I mean, uh, during press tour, I believe I described the show as being about a pint-sized journalist, and she corrected me on Twitter uh, (laughs) about her actual size. So, (laughs) did she say she was like a a gallon? Something, something to that effect. It was. She definitely was was following the conversation about that press tour panel and made sure that she corrected, not actually pint-sized. I'm still probably going to use that expression again at some point, but I feel bad about it now, at least. Well, what's so interesting about Hildy is that I think it bothers her that people focus so much on her age because she's sort of like, of course I can do this. I don't think she fully realizes how kind of extraordinary it is that she is that driven at such a young age because she's always been who she is. So to her, it's not extraordinary. It's just who she is. And she thinks that every kid has that capacity inside them if, you know, their parents treat them seriously and believe in what they're trying to do. You know, for her, it's not a big deal. And so for the rest of us, we're going like, but oh my God, do you know how young you are? Like, do you understand how extraordinary this is? And, you know, that story that you're telling is one of my favorite things about Hildy, actually, and why she is such like a beacon for what I do on the show with this character is that she worships journalists because it's what she does not remember a time when she didn't want to be a journalist. She doesn't remember it. She was so young when she decided this is what she wanted to do. She worships journalists, but the thing that she cares the most about is the truth. So she's not there to like make friends. I mean, it's like some of the stuff that she does. I'm like, oh boy, Hildy. Oh girl. And lines from the show come from her, you know, because I hear her say things and I go, oh my God, I can't believe that little girl just said that. And she kind of is all of us in a weird way. I'm a woman who just like wishes I could say things. And I say, Dana, don't say that. That's not, no one's going to be happy if you say that. And so I don't say them. And Hildy's like, whatever, boom. And she says it. So it's, it's, it's kind of wonderful and kind of terrifying all at the same time. Well, how much access did you have to her? And how did you make the determination how much this character was going to be kind of the real Hildy? Because you, you keep her first name, but you change the last name. Obviously, some of this isn't fully or biographical, rather. How did you decide where the line was? Yeah, there's a lot that's true about what happened. You know, she did move to her father's hometown. She did scoop the local paper on a murder. So all of that stuff was actually true. But we wanted to try to create sort of a true crime bingeable element to it. And I knew that I had to fictionalize that, obviously. So that's kind of the line. But when I was initially talking about this project with Joy, and, you know, at the time I was working on Cruella for Disney, and I was kind of learning how to write a movie, a giant movie, for four quadrants, for everybody, for moms, dads, grandparents sitting on the couch, young kids, teenagers. And I kind of learned through that process that, like, it is possible to make a scene 
appeal to all those people at the same time, that each one of those people can watch it and think, oh, this is for me yeah. and, and me alone. That, that's the sweet spot, you know, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with that term. Yeah. Four Quadrant appeals to everyone, the biggest, broadest audience. And it's what broadcast networks want. It's what, you know, as far as I understand, Apple really wants aspirational content. And that's exactly what this show is. And it, it checks every bucket. I mean, I feel like it does. And I'm so glad you say that. But, you know, it's one of those things where I think we did it by not trying to appeal to everybody. We did it. I believe that real universality comes from specificity and comes from something not trying to be all things to all people, but rather being very, very fundamentally what it is. And so I kind of let the show and these this incredible star, Brooklyn Prince, I kind of let Hildy and Brooklyn lead me to what the show wanted to be. And I followed that and made it very specific. And I think in doing that, it's appealing to a very, very broad audience. But back to your question about like sort of initially what was true, you know, how much did I take from the real Hildy and how much did I take, you know, fictionalized? I think in the very beginning when Joy and I were first talking about this project, it was really difficult for me to think about the real person. I I was really struggling with that. So I kind of said, I need to not think about her at all for a while to figure out what this is to me, what I really care about what do I connect with in this and you know initially when everybody heard about it it was like oh she's a little girl like detective isn't that cute I'm like well no she's an investigative journalist and she's kind of snarky and she's kind of intense and she's sort of more serious than almost every adult I know so it isn't really that and I constantly had to fight the idea of it being this cutesy little thing and this kids show and I kept saying I'm not interested in watching that or making it when I was a little kid I wanted to watch stuff on the couch with my entire family that I was not supposed to watch (laughs) that was stuff that like they were watching because they loved it and I was like oh yeah, I'm going to sit here and hope that they don't kick me out of the room. You know, it was Close Encounters. It was Jaws. I mean, I know my parents regretted showing me that because I slept in their bed for like two weeks. But, you know, (laughs) those were the things I wanted to watch. I wanted to be there with my family and I wanted to feel like I was getting to see something I wasn't really allowed to see. So um, it was very important to me in the beginning that I just kind of like follow my gut in terms of what I really wanted the story to be. And I didn't click into it, honestly, until I figured out the father relationship. And I figured out the adult part of it, which is that for me, you know, knowing the real story, which is that Matt at a certain point, the real Matt, at a certain point got very sort of disillusioned with journalism and got very, he had covered some very dark stuff and it was really tough for him. And so he had stepped away from journalism and said, I can't do it anymore. And he took his whole family back to his hometown and they got there and you know, Hildy basically said, you may not be a journalist anymore, but I still am. And so nine years old, she had that in her and she went out and said, I'm going to go look for stories. And she got on her bike and she cruised around. She looked for stories. And two weeks later, she was the one that scooped the paper on the murder. And when everybody had all those negative comments and she got a ton of kickback and I thought, oh, what a wonderful thing. Everybody must have celebrated you because isn't that cool? It was the opposite. Everybody hated her. And they were like, who are you? Sit down. Shut up. Like you just came here and you just did all this stuff and you're causing all these problems and nobody knows who you are. So she basically could have curled up in a ball and said, I give up. But Which at nine, would, would, no one would I mean, I would have been in the yeah. bed with the, I would have been in pajamas for a week, my friend. I would have had those covers all the way up to my nose. And, I, you know, and instead she asked her older sister to turn on a camera and she recorded herself reading the negative comments out loud and she name checked everybody and she put it online. And, 
you know, her standing up to those bullies and standing up to those negative comments, she said she did it because she wanted to be a good role model to her sisters. I mean, I can't even talk about it without yeah, crying. That's it pretty makes incredible. Me so emotional. But she did it because she wanted to do the right thing for her kids' sisters. She wanted to show them this is what you do when people come after you. And, you know, she said, this is the truth. And, I, you know, I'm going to defend the truth. So she did that. And watching her do that and watching her pure love of journalism, this thing that she had inside her that could not be sort of stifled, is what actually brought her father sort of back to life and back to journalism. And once I knew that, I was like, oh, that's the story for me. That I can't even talk about without hysterically crying because on some level, I think we're all kind of trying to save our dads. <laughs> like whoever dad is to you, like dad isn't necessarily your father, but it's that sort of figure that mm -hmm. represents that thing to you, whoever that is in your life. I think some of us, you know, most of us are kind of hoping that we can do something that will make it okay for some previous generation ahead of us that will have made our relationship with that person okay or make them okay. So to me, that was the universal element at the heart of all this, oddly enough, because a little girl who's a journalist at nine years old is actually totally not universal. It's like there's one person. I'm sure there are other amazing kid journalists, honestly, and I hope that in taking the show out and people seeing it, I can learn more and more about who those people are. But, you know, in terms of us finding a really large audience, I was like, we have to hook into something way more primal than this. And for me, that was it. And the idea that her case was about solving something in her father's past that was causing him to be depressed. She believes if she solves the case, she'll save her father. That was it for me. Which is also something that sort of adds to the inherently Spielbergian aspect of this. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> it. And I just remember sitting there watching Close Encounters and being like, there's a dad building a tower out of mashed potatoes. <laughs> dad's not okay. And we know dad's not okay because he's crying in the shower with all his clothes on. And there was something as a kid to me that felt so fundamentally real and right about that. Like my father wasn't in the shower with his clothes on, but there was stuff going on always in our family where you, and I have a wonderful family, bless them, I love them so much, but there was always stuff going on where you were like, I think something's wrong here. And your parents, because you're young, they say, no, 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 you're fine. It's the original gaslighting. Do you know what I mean? It teaches <laughs> children how to be gaslit <laughs> and to grow up to be adults who are gaslit. So parents always say, no, 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 everything is fine. Kids know in their guts that it's not fine. We feel it. We know that. And so that was a big part. You know, Dara, who did the show with me, has this amazing thing that she talked about very early on that I really hooked into that she said, which is in a house with children, secrets are like my monsters, right? So I was watching Stranger Things. I was liking different shows. I was watching BBC Sherlock and Broadchurch and all these different things. And fundamentally, what I wanted to hook into and what Dara and I got excited about in John Chu is, you know, you don't need monsters. Like sometimes monsters are actually not that scary because you know they're not real. What's really scary is secrets because you don't know what they are. And that happens in the show where the little girl says to her dad, you know, the scary thing is not knowing. It's not it's not that you had a secret. It's it's that I knew you had a secret and you weren't telling it to me. So I want to trust our kids more that we can they can handle things. I want people to treat kids like they can handle stuff. And, uh, you know, that's a big part of what the show is about. So much of the show hinges on the casting of Brooklyn Prince as, uh, as Hildy. Please. Talk a little bit about one. the casting search for that and the audition process and when they finally met. Oh, God, I love Brooklyn so much. I'm so happy we get to talk about Brooklyn. <laughs> She's the most wonderful human being that lives on planet Earth. Um, she truly is, like, as talented as she is as an actress, she is a hundred million percent of a kinder, more wonderful person. So I love talking about her. So basically, when we started the search, we realized 
very quickly after, you know, we sold the the show to series. So we knew we had 10 episodes. We were so excited. And very quickly after that, we were like, oh, no. If we don't find the right girl, we don't have anything. And we and all kid kind casting of, is very tricky. It's so hard. And, and not only is it really tricky to find, but also combine that with a television schedule. Like a movie is one thing. You do it in 30 days. You can kind of get anybody to sort of do anything for a certain number of days. This is like six months worth of work. And so you have to know that you're finding children who are not being forced to work. They're kids who like literally don't want to do anything else but this. That for them, you know, Brooklyn, I believe um, the reason she's so extraordinary on the show is because she She's so incredibly empathetic and she's very professional. She learns her lines. She studies her craft. She's amazing in in that respect. But when it really comes down to it and she's getting ready to be in the moment, she thinks about what that character would have felt and just feels it. So you're not watching her acting a feeling. You're watching her feeling a feeling. And, you know, there were so many times on set in particular, if you think about the pilot, there's a moment when her dad finally yells at her and her dad is sort of her hero and he finally gets sort of frustrated and he kind of barks at her. And, you know, that day on set, I was crying so hard. I had to be like, my monitor had to be moved to like a completely different area because I kept ruining takes with how hard I was crying. So, you know, it's it's because what you're watching is you're watching a person feel a feeling. And so she knows what it's like to worship your parents and to feel like you disappointed them in some way. And then she just feels that. And so to me, the, the lightning in a bottle that we actually have on this show, the really extraordinary thing is that you are watching that child, Brooklyn Prince, who I think is going to be an extraordinary creator. I think she's going to be a director. I think she's going to be a writer. I think she's going to be an extraordinary talent that we know for a really long time. You're watching that sort of happen in real time. So when we were first looking for her in the beginning, you know, Joy, obviously, who knows everything always, like two and a half years before everybody else, she said, well, there's really only one actress. It's Brooklyn Prince from The Florida Project. I had not seen The Florida Project at that time. And we heard Brooklyn wasn't doing TV. She's only doing movies. So we were like, all right, fine. She's she's a movie star now. Let me tell you, she's not taking calls. You know, like it was a little, yes, it sounds ridiculous. Um, but we heard, don't even try. It's not going to happen. So we sort of didn't. And Joy is like, I love it when people say no to me because then I just try harder. So Joy was kind of behind the scenes trying to reach out to the parents and sort of say, hey, this is different. This isn't television. This is tiny movies. This is 10 tiny movies. We're doing it at that quality. It's going to feel that real and it's going to feel that beautiful. So like, come consider us, consider us. And of course, nobody, whatever. So we ended up starting to look for girls. And I think what became really clear to us is we saw a ton of people who are at the actual age of what Hildy was when the story happened, nine years old, eight years old. And it was like my kids, you know, they can't sit in their seat for seven seconds. Like there there was absolutely no one who was even remotely close at that age group who could possibly pull off saying three lines in a row, much less like carrying a TV show. So it was very, we were like, oh no. So we started seeing older and older and older and older girls. And we were hoping we would find someone who's older, who like looked younger. So we were like, I don't know, is that one not eating well? Bring her in, see what happens. She seems small. I'm kidding, you guys. Of course I'm joking. Um, But, you know, we were sort of hoping we would find somebody who could do it and and be around the age because it stops being extraordinary if the girl is much older. You know, if you have a 15-year-old girl looking for, you know, doing her cases or figuring stuff out or being a journalist is, is slightly less impressive than a nine-year-old girl. 
And so we were really like, we really want to stay true to the material because she is a real person. And that's what's so extraordinary about her. So we weren't very successful. We saw thousands and thousands of girls and started to get real nervous because we realized we didn't have a show unless we found this girl. And finally, we somehow got the script to Brooklyn's family and to, to her agents got it to her or something. And they read it and they said, oh, wait a minute, we get it now. We see what you're saying. We will we will audition. Like, this is amazing. So we were lucky that this, the material attracted her. And so she did a Skype audition for us. And it was me and John Chu and Joy and Dara and our incredible casting directors. And we were sitting there watching her on her the little Skype thing. And she just started the scene. And just within seconds, we were like staring at each other and giving each other these little looks and going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then, you know, she did the whole scene and there was an emotional scene and I just sort of ducked off camera so they couldn't see me. And I'm like weeping on the side of the camera and just sobbing over here so they couldn't see me. And then I like wipe my tears and I come back on and I'm like, Brooklyn, great job, man. Like really good. Yeah. You want to do the next scene? And I'm like just trying to hide the fact that I'm like hysterically crying and like texting people, please, God, make the deal with this girl. Like this is incredible. <laughs> you, you have to play it a little bit cool. Yeah, I was trying to play you know, don't call us. We'll call yeah, you, yeah, Brooklyn. Yeah. I was trying to keep my, my cards close to the vest and no one's worse Thanks than for that. considering TV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for deigning to like meet with us. But but yeah, so she, and by the way, that's just because she has a family and, you know, they weren't sure about, honestly, the schedule. It's a lot. It's it's six months of being away from your home and, you know, when it's a kid, your your whole family has to go. So they were amazing that they considered us at all and, and we were, felt so lucky to find Brooklyn. And then, you know, I called Sam Kwong, the wonderful acting coach who had worked with her on the Florida Project, and I said to her, you know, hey, can you tell me a little bit about her off camera? Because I knew like a TV show is a marriage and God willing, yeah. you're on for a long time and, and knock on wood. And P.S. We got a second season and it's incredible the fact that we got a second season before the show ever came out. So we're, we feel so lucky and we hope that we get to go on forever and ever. But because of that, you have to be really careful about who you hire. You know, it has to be all really good people. Yeah, Sean Deland famously now has it's no a holes policy where they, you know, a lot of a lot of productions are increasingly doing that because you know to your point, you know, some of most of these shows that aren't limited series and don't have closed ended runs, you're going to be working with these people for six years. That's, you know, a, a standard TV contract is for six years, six seasons. Correct, and it's it's a quality of life issue mm-hmm. for a lot of people, and we mm-hmm. all are like, we don't want to be locked into some weird thing with a bunch of weirdos. So everybody on this show, you know, I. I called Sam about uh, Brooklyn and, and that was when Sam's I you know I thought oh the Florida project like that must have been all improv because she was six years old she won a Critics Choice Award like that's bananas like what does that even mean she's an infant and so I called and I said you know what was it like on set like was that all improv because she seemed so natural that has to have been improv and she said no that's that was the script dude like that whole thing that was the script she said Brooklyn is good at improv and there were like a few moments in it that were improvised but like that was the script and I thought that's insane like how is that possible and you know Brooklyn's mother Courtney is an acting coach of children and so I know that sounds sort of like incredibly convenient and wonderful (laughs) but Courtney is like the greatest person of all time and so for you know for Brooklyn it was just like you know her mom had turned play into like a thing that they could do together. And it was just like, you're playing together, you're creating, you know, Brooklyn has this extraordinary imagination. And I think her mom was just kind of like, okay, you want to pretend you're at a restaurant and you're the maitre d' and you're kind of a jerk and I'm the this. And and then they just do it. They just play, they have fun. So, you know, it was sort of in her blood and, and then she sort of developed her own stuff. But 
the thing that Sam said that really clinched it for me is she said, Brooklyn is one of the greatest people I have ever met in my entire life, just personally. She is literally one of my favorite people on the planet. I will consider myself to be family with her for the rest of my life. And my greatest personal relationships I've made on shows or movies or whatever I've done, like those things mean a lot to me, you know? So I heard her say that and I said, okay, this is like for sure our person. And then, you know, we were so lucky to have her. And then we went around and found this cast that was so extraordinary. And for each one of them, I called and I, I said that it was the no a-holes thing. You know, I was like, we have children here and I'm a mother of three kids and their well-being is the most important thing to me of everything. So I want a set that's incredibly kind and nice and positive. This is their childhood. This is their, they are growing up on this set. So I want good role models around them all over the place. And so I made sure with every actor we got, I went for the best actor and I chose the sort of 70s movie choice for everybody. I didn't want the like, you know, you know, broadcast mom who's like crazy mom. Um, I wanted the like 1970s movie mom, you know, I wanted the Close Encounters mom. I wanted the thing that felt really real. And so I found Abby Miller, who's absolutely extraordinary. I found Jim Sturgis, who's like absolutely extraordinary. And he and Brooklyn and their chemistry together is beyond. And that was what the show was about. So we had to see it with the two of them. So we got them together. And like the second they met, you know, they looked more like they were related, honestly, than Brooklyn they and really her do, real yeah. dad. Like it was crazy. We were like, Courtney, yeah. you got anything you want to tell us here? Like, I mean, it was crazy. And, you, and how, even their dynamic at press tour was really, really great. And I think that that to me is what part of what makes the show look, I'm already, you know, kind of sold because it's a journalism show and it happens to be about a nine year old journalist who's excellent at, at her craft already. And Leslie but is also, also a nine year old journalist for uh, for people who are. <laughs> yes, listening. I, I love covering <laughs> things about she's uh, inspiring you know, to us yeah. all. Sure. Thank you, Dan. And <laughs> so does that, what does that make you? Does that make you an, uh, a seven year old TV critic? Pretty much. I don't know. <laughs> I digress. But look, I mean, the thing that that's interesting about the show is that it, it feels like it could be a Nancy Drew thing, but it's definitely not. It, this is an adult show, but it happens to also check these other boxes for a younger demo. And, and it's it's going to be a co-viewing thing, which in this coronavirus climate could be a very, very important thing for a lot of these platforms right now. And, you know, just to kind of redirect us a little bit, and I want I do want to talk about season two, but so there's one this one central case in season one. But season two, do you have is it gonna be a new a new case every season? If you could just speak generally speaking about what yes, the plan I'm gonna is. Yes, I'm gonna try to be really careful seasons. about spoilers because I'm so bad at keeping my cards close to the vest. I'm like, oh my god, you guys, let's just talk about everything. So I'm gonna try to talk like a little bit slowly and make sure I don't screw anything up. But you know, the first season we always had a very clear idea of how we wanted the first season to end. And as a viewer of television and just like a lover of t good TV, one of the things that I experience when I'm watching these streaming shows or I'm watching any really good sort of mysteries is that I hook into things that people don't necessarily expect me to hook into. And I'm watching the show for a specific reason that I don't know if anybody who's creating the show is necessarily thinking about. So like maybe I've hooked into a specific character and their journey. So I don't love it when shows completely reinvent the wheel in the second season because I'm like, you didn't realize I was here for this feeling and now this isn't the feeling I'm having right. when I'm watching the show. So it was always really important to me from season to season that the feeling of watching the show stayed the same. So that there was a, it's, 
there's an incredibly compelling bingeable mystery at the core of it, but really it's a family show. It's warm. It makes people feel good. And you mentioned coronavirus. And, you know, honestly, I think we didn't know where we would be when we started this show. But what we knew is we wanted families on their couches together, watching something together, feeling like it's all going to be okay. That no matter how uncertain things get, it's going to be okay. And that's really the feeling that this show gives you. So I knew I wanted to have that sort of extend throughout the seasons. But I also knew that I wanted people to feel like we very satisfyingly wrapped up a specific sort of thing that you're wondering about in season one. And then season two, I think what you realize is that the thing you thought was the ending was actually the beginning of a much bigger thing. Oh, very cool. So that's sort of the feeling you're going to have in season and, two. You know, you mentioned coronavirus. And, and I should say that we are recording this. Today is March 12th. And everything is being shut down as we do this interview. And the NHL just suspended its season. MLB looks like it's up next, uh, much to my our chagrin. We're big baseball fans on this show. But I'm curious, too, you know, as someone, you know, who already has a season two order, how is coronavirus and, and this worldwide pandemic affecting the writer's room? How is this affecting production? You guys have a, a world premiere event coming, presumably, for the show. Is that still on? We just had the, the premiere, world premiere for Little Fires Everywhere just canceled last night as we record this now. So... Yeah, I mean, How I, can't, is this I honestly can't speak to it, partly because my phone is in my bag, so I don't know the answer. <laughs> but I honestly think these things are changing minute by yeah. minute. And I think everyone is just sort of telling us what we know from minute to minute. Fortunately, we were done with a lot of our scripts. And so, so much of that was thankfully. So we, were, we don't need to do too much more in terms of that. And we're just going to see what happens. And my most important thing is I just want people to feel safe. Yeah, and I think sure. this is just another place where people need to feel safe in their work environment. And so whatever that means to anybody is what I want to support as a boss. But is it effective for writers rooms to work by video conferencing? Is that something that, that I can absolutely be effective? I think that could be effective. Our room is sort of done and we're just more finishing up some two? of the writing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we just finished shooting the third episode. So we're pretty deep into season two. And I knew I really wanted to be done with scripts very early, especially because when you're plotting out a 10 episode mystery, like you kind of need to know exactly where you're ending to be able to go back and make sure you're laying all the really interesting Easter eggs. And that's been something that's been so fun about this show. And we're so grateful to Apple to have like those orders that are bigger orders because you can do that. You don't have to be lost. And well, I mean, lost probably knew it was going to be on the air until the end of time quite early on. But, you know, in the very early years, they would be like, you know, they do an episode and then be like, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere because we have no idea. You know, we're three episodes ahead. So it's nice to be able to have the 10 episodes and be able to go back and put drop things in and make it incredibly satisfying because later you'll be like oh my god that thing that was going to happen in episode 10 like it had been there in front of me the whole time and I didn't see it oh my god right but but in terms of coronavirus yeah like where does your show shoot we shoot in Vancouver and you know I don't have any control over whether yeah. that I honestly the answer might be in my bag right now so I have a feeling that by the time this comes out we'll all know what happened with that but for me personally I've always been just in terms of the, I'll just speak to the writer's room element of it the writer's room is here in LA and I've always been a big believer in partially because I come from the feature world, like adults are adults and they know how to get the best work out of themselves. So I want people to feel like they can do their best work, whatever that means. So I'm a morning person, but I am in bed, no joke, by like 845. Like it's legitimately sort of scary. You might wonder about my health, but I am okay, I think, knock on wood. (laughs) But I literally go to bed at like nine o'clock because I can't, I just, I power down. I'm just like, I can't. I've burned so brightly during the day and like I'm out, I'm tapping out. So 
you know, but a lot of people that work with me, all these incredible writers, they are night people. So I'm like, dude, if you want to come in late and then you want to work late, like go for it. Whatever makes you do the thing. Right. But the original, like when you're first coming together, like there's a lot of shows like we are not on a traditional TV calendar anymore where it's like, you know, defined by the broadcast season. So you've got shows, especially with a potential Writers Guild strike around the corner. You've got shows that are already in production for season two. We can can only deal with one catastrophe. But this is, you know, where where you've got some shows that are in the the early days, you know, the the blue sky where everyone's sitting around the table, hypothetically. The blue sky is a lot harder for what's happening right now. Exactly. I feel very bad for shows that are actually in the writer's room phase of things because I don't think it's going to be quite as easy as you think. Like a Google Hangout with a bunch of faces, with a bunch of like, I, this is an old reference, with a bunch of like Max Hedrums, you know, like, I got that. Max like, did anybody get that? Are there like four that. people yeah, who got that weird here. joke from 150 years ago? The, <laughs> the old guys. THR newsroom used to have a big picture of Max Hedrum. Oh, yeah. you guys are nice. Um, but yeah, a bunch of little heads, like floating heads in space, it's not the same thing as sitting in a room and really hashing it out. That is, I think, going to be really hard for people. I am not in that phase. I feel like we happen to pass that phase. We're lucky we got past that phase, and now we're just finishing up the writing. So we don't necessarily need to be in the same room with each other, so it's going to be a lot easier for me. You know, I really think the key is we have a moral responsibility as writers, as people in this guild, in this business together that we're all in, to put our arms around each other at this moment. So I think that if you are on a show that is ultimately, I'm lucky that we aren't in the room, what can I do to help other writers? What can I do to help other people who are struggling during this time? I think we're you know, going to go into a very interesting moment in history. And I think we need to, as people, really rise to the occasion and we need to be our best selves. And so for me personally, what that's going to mean is you know, reaching out to younger writers and saying, do you want me to help you with your script during this period? What, you know, how can I help you? Do you, do you have health care? What do you need? You know, just sort of being very specific on the community level with friends and people around you who may be suffering from anxiety or may not have enough money in the bank to sort of withstand the two month break that we're probably all going to be in mm-hmm. by the time this comes out. I want to go back a little bit to sort of structure and building out stories, because I'm curious about what you've learned about stakes and how much jeopardy you can put a nine-year-old child in and... Oh, my goodness. And, you know, sort of how you build out cliffhangers and how you build out high drama without necessarily having, for example, I assume you don't want her to ever be in genuine jeopardy because that throws the tone out of balance. Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, I would say that's the thing that I have struggled with the most and enjoyed kind of trying to conquer the most. This has been the hardest thing about this show is the tone. So, you know, very early on, you know, we had always said, we're doing a four quadrant show. We want people on the couch sitting next to each other. We want kids holding on to their parents because they're a little bit scared, but not too scared. We want parents sobbing their faces off because the of the stuff that's going on and that, that only parents understand, which is like, oh my God, your childhood is going by so fast and I'm weeping in the corner and I don't want you to see it. So, you know, we knew what we wanted this to be. But, you know, when you say to people, I want to do a four quadrant TV show, the response initially was like, no, 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 they only do that in movies. That's not a TV show thing. That's a movie thing that doesn't exist in TV. And I was like, but we're going to do it. <laughs> I'm I'm going to make it exist in television. <laughs> and so the tone, di- the dial was incredibly difficult on that because people are very sophisticated viewers. And if they're interested in murder mysteries, for example, 
you've got to give them an incredibly twisty, delicious murder mystery in order to keep up with things. But with this show, as you say, she's nine years old. I think most adults, especially adults who have children, aren't necessarily like that psyched to watch things that are about children in genuine peril. Mm -hmm. And as a mother of three kids, I'm like, I can't focus on a scene. If I am watching a movie or am I am watching a TV show, I cannot focus on what the human beings are saying if I don't see the child's seatbelt on. Like, that's how crazy I am. So I know this from being a mother. So I said to myself, like, at all times, you have to know that she is, like, physically safe, that no one's going to be creepy to her. She's not going to get hurt. There's not going to be that kind of danger because it it's not scary in a good way. It's scary in a bad way, and it pushes people away. So I didn't want it to be that kind of stuff. I wanted it to be the kind of stuff where you're so deeply inside who she is that you know that to her – it's incredibly scary. And because she is your access character, it's scary to you too. So that was sort of how we handled all of the decisions. And very early on, I said to Dara, okay, like every day that you're in the room, I want to see you put this up on the board and think about this. When am I going to laugh? When am I going to cry? When am I going to have chills? And why do I have to watch the next episode? Those are the only four things I care about in this show. And so I knew that those were the feelings that I wanted to have because I think people come to TV because they want feelings, right? It's not about – so it's actually sort of all about tone. You know what I mean? It isn't about the specifics of what happens. It's like if I held a gun to someone's head and asked them what's the plot point that occurred in such and such in that that one episode, they'd be like, I don't know, but didn't you love the part where the cat was this and then they cried because they missed their cat? I don't know why I thought of that. It's that kind of stuff that really kind of makes people feel drawn to it. So that was how we addressed kind of like how scary we wanted it to be. But in a weird way, because she's a kid and because the show is so real, a lot of stuff is scarier than you think it would be. Like I said, when there's monsters, you know they're not real. But when it's secrets and when it's adults who are doing bad things and and maybe a kid is walking into it not understanding that they are actually kind of pushing some buttons and getting some skeletons to come out of closets that are really kind of scary and that are going to cause a real issue – you're even more terrified watching it because you're like, they don't know how much danger they're in. It's sort of that same thing as the horror movie when you're like, oh, God, don't go in there. Oh, she's going to go in there. But Hildy does that with the truth, right? So she shines the light on adult secrets, and the adults are like, ooh, you better turn off that light because it's about to get really real. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, we always like to end these interviews with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying right now? Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. Okay. My husband makes fun of me because nobody is a later adopter of a thing than me. Like, I I'm bet like, you I am later than you are. Are you kidding me? Literally like two years ago, I was like, you know who I feel bad for? Beyonce. <laughs> I just thought she was going to make it. And my husband's like, I, you're kidding, right? I'm like, no, she was in that Dream Girls and she was so great. And then I was like, and he's like, don't ever say that out loud to anyone ever again. She's the biggest star in the entire world. And then I started listening to her and I'm like, she's incredible. Who is this? So then I start trying to tell people about Beyonce. It doesn't go well. Um, so you're going to. Maybe you were right. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to hear some. So like, Friends. Yeah. So basically there's this new show. It's called Friends. You guys are going to freak out. It's hilarious. Um, no, I'm watching Peaky. Blinders, which I feel like is maybe 150 years old, but I love it so much. It's still niche though. Like, so I, I feel like probably some people are gonna be like, God, she's five episodes behind, but I feel like probably 85 to 90 people are gonna be like, huh? Yeah, a Peaky Blinders is like, a, a, like I said, it's a feeling. It's like a thing I'm going to for a feeling. I am doing Peaky Blinders. I just finished Mrs. Maisel, which I just think is sort of like crack. I love it so much. I'm trying to think of other things. The stuff that influenced me, you know, in this show, I still am obsessed with Broadchurch, BBC Sherlock. I'm like staring at my watch waiting for more of that. 
but really, Peaky Blinders is it. And also, because I'm making a TV show, I have no time to watch actual television. <laughs> so, Peaky Blinders. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dana. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You guys are amazing. And as the last faces I apparently will ever see, you guys are very gorgeous. So, Well, let's <laughs> end you, on a dark Dana. note. <laughs> uh. Home Before Dark premieres April 3rd on Apple TV+. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new launches include Home Before Dark, Amazon's Tales from the Loop, Money Heist on Netflix, the new season of The Good Fight on CBS All Access, and a whole bunch of Quibi programming. Dan, Dan, what do you got? So much Quibi programming. Unreal. Anyway. So your plate is full of Quick Bites? You have a my, full plate of Quick Bites? I, I definitely You're, you're had drowning a- in Quick Bites? I, I'm here all day, man. Gorging. Uh, I have gorged, but regardless, there's an embargo, so I can't talk about any of it. So, oh, well. Uh, Wait, when's the embargo? The embargo is premiere day. Oy vey. So, so my reviews of all of those shows, and literally all of them, I've I've seen all of the scripted and unscripted launches, not to be confused so how, with the So how news. many shows did you review, and they'll be posting when? Monday the 6th? They will be posting Monday the 6th, and I have little blurbs. I would describe my reviews as, say, for example, quick bites, uh, because... <laughs> I see they what are, you did there. They are no longer than like 60 or 70 words a piece because, again, there are 24 of them. So, yeah. Anyway, there's not much of a Critics Corner segment if I'm talking about things that I can't give a opinion on. So, yeah, uh, things I can give opinions on. I think Amazon's Tales from the Loop, which you mentioned earlier, is based on it's based on a a book of paintings. So by a, by a Swedish artist, and the paintings are, are truly fascinating. Lots of them you can see online in different forms. Uh, they all have kind of a Swedish pastoral or suburban foreground, and then these odd remnants of science fiction genre tropes in the background. So giant tractors that float or robots that appear to have eyes but really are headlights or giant looming towers. Uh, And so the series itself is a lot like that in that it's primarily about human concerns, but with science fiction in the background. Um, I think that probably people who want hard sci-fi are going to be frustrated by the way that this science fiction is mostly a catalyst for human drama. But I think a lot of people will find the episodes emotional and interesting. Amazon, for whatever reason, only sent out three episodes. And so I'm not really sure what the series looks like in its totality. I I know that the three episodes I've seen all focus on different kinds of absence and loss. They focus on loneliness. They focus on death. And so it's not a peppy binge, but I think there is something emotionally resonant about what it's trying to do. And I will be curious to check out more of it, uh, but I don't know when I'll have time. Um, Let's see. You should have just listened to our excellent interview with Dana Fox about Home Before Dark, and you would have heard all of her discussion about how they basically, how complicated and also necessary it was to cast Brooklyn Prince in the lead role the show doesn't work without her. There, There is no show without Brooklyn Prince. It is, it is a show that hinges on having a young actress capable of playing a nine-year-old journalist in a way that is compelling, honest, and never cloying. And she does that 
amazingly well. She's sometimes funny. The show, it really does have funny moments. Uh, she captures emotion well. There, there were a few things that the show did that that made me a little teary. And there's there's a decent mystery that runs through it. It's it's not always all that consistently told, and there are some clunkinesses to the flashback structure of it. But it is a it's a good murder mystery with a great lead performance by its young actress. And I, I think it probably is a show that plays a little bit like kind of vintage 80s Spielberg or Zemeckis uh, because of when the flashbacks are set. Back to the Future plays a key role in the flashbacks. Um, you, you can tell its influences and it does a lot of big, important things fairly well. I think it's I think it's a good watch. Um, the later episodes mostly tend to be between 40 and 45 minutes, which I appreciated. Uh, some of the early ones are a little bit longer, but I think, I think it's a good show that's worth watching and that probably much of the family could sit down and watch it and enjoy it. I, I don't know necessarily that the youngest children should watch it. And I think probably some older viewers will be a little reticent to watch a show with a nine-year-old protagonist, but yeah, I, so those are a couple big things. Uh, HBO's documentary about the Atlanta child murders, which premieres on Sunday. Uh, I've only had the chance to watch a couple episodes of it, and so I didn't review it. But it, it is very compelling and interesting. And if that's something that you have the, the stomach or the heart to watch, which heaven knows lots of people will not, it's a good piece of television to watch. Uh, what else is next week? All of those finales that we mentioned, but I haven't seen any of them, but We'll see. I'm betting people will be very emotional. I, see, I, I may have already seen the Modern Family series finale, and it is it it, it feels it does feel very much like a series finale. So, well, they, that's all they, I can they, say. The rest, and I'm not a critic, so take make of that what you will. <laughs> They've been heading towards uh, something resolutiony for the past handful of episodes, and I've actually thought this season was better than the past couple seasons. I, I think they've they haven't. It's not. I wouldn't say it's peak season one through three modern family but I, I think that they've been heading towards the end on pretty solid footing and i'll be curious to see how they make the final uh, the final episode emotionally resonant but yeah so I, I would recommend watching the pilot again i've seen the pilot many 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 times at this point but i can i'm not recommending I, it to you dan oh okay you're recognizing it recommending it to the people the people yes. the children the kids i don't know lots of tv oh, yeah. and of course who wants to be a millionaire is back. Yes. Well, <laughs> for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's newly launched Now See This newsletter. You can subscribe by clicking on the newsletters tab at the top of THR.com. And of course, this feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Mrs. America showrunner Davi Waller. Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always on Twitter and happy to say hi to people. If you've got questions, comments, and concerns, bring them to us. But if you've got questions, let's be honest, we probably need some mailbag segments for upcoming weeks. So you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. And as a little teaser, without saying more, we're planning, hopefully in the near future, some fun mailbag events that could make things, I don't know, a little bit more interactive with the audience. So stay tuned. Stay tuned to both of our Twitter feeds for more information. And until then, Dan, stay safe, stay sane. Same to you, Leslie.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.